Well, good evening. Good to be with you tonight. If I can find my way around here. This is a compact space, so let me try and make a little room. There we go. Well, I'm glad to see you all here tonight, and we're going to be dealing in a few, just a very short time with a, an abused um, or neglected topic. It, seem, it seems to be one of the two extremes. Either it's abused with all sorts of fanciful notions that are contrary to Scripture. You hear a lot of stories, but very little Scripture to back them up. Um, or it is neglected, where some will say, yep, there's spiritual warfare. I know the Bible talks about that. Let's move on and talk about something else. Let me uh, begin by introducing myself. I've got a, a little bio here. I was dead in the trespasses and sins in which I once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when I was dead in my trespasses, made me alive together with Christ. By grace, I have been saved. All right, that's my bio. And for all of you who are believers, uh, that's your bio too. Because spiritual warfare is kingdom qualified. It means that we have been delivered from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and brought into the kingdom of life and light in Jesus Christ. And this uh, different kingdom speaks to what kingdom we seek, what kingdom we serve, what king we serve. It has to do with all sorts of aspects of the Christian life, some of which we're going to explore um, this evening. Now, the title of this little talk is The Christian Life as Spiritual Warfare. Uh, it's not spiritual warfare in the Christian life. It's the Christian life as spiritual warfare. And one of the reasons for that is uh, the... Sometimes we think of Christian warfare as something that is episodic to life. You know, we have encounters, we have skirmishes with the devil. Uh, but actually, it's much more uh, ordinary than that because, as we'll see, Christ spiritual warfare is part of what it means, and it covers every aspect of our walk with Christ and our work for Christ. It has to do with our growth, our sanctification in Christ-likeness, and it has to do with our mission as Christ's church. So spiritual warfare is part, is integral to a life. Now, we're introduced to our... I've got bifocals on, and it's just the wrong thing. So let me mention this. We, uh, we first encounter our enemy, the devil, in... Genesis 3. 
Now, in Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that God had made everything. He created from nothing, and he deemed it all good. We see uh, in Genesis 3, we see the entrance of an enemy into the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And we learn something there of his tactics. Remember what uh, you know, God had told Adam and Eve uh, they were not allowed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for they will surely die, and here comes Satan. And he says, did God really say? And so you see what he's doing there. We see Satan tactic is he's talking to Eve, and he's making her make a decision. Well, did God say? What do you think about that? And then Satan takes a more direct approach where he says, um, you know, if you eat of this, you're going to gain knowledge, and God is depriving you. And so what he's doing is he's taking this subtle way to pit Eve against God. Well, Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit, and death is brought into the world. We have uh, alienation right away. We have alienation of God with man. So, uh, God created us to glorify, to enjoy him. We are image bearers, but there's that broken relationship with God. Alienation between man and God. There's alienation of man with one another. Alienation of man with his environment. And actually, alienation of man with himself. But God, in the thick of that, gives a promise. And he promises the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush the head of the serpent. What do we notice right away? Here God has allowed history to continue. God could have brought the curtain down on human history right then. But God, right in the thick of things, gives a promise of the seed of the woman. And we see that, that promise framed in what? In terms of what? Combat. Combat. Warfare. Opposition. All right, we turn the page from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4. And God could have ended history then, but he did not. He allowed history to continue as the womb for the promise of a redeemer. And what do we see in Genesis 4? We see the story of Cain and Abel. And what that story does is it serves basically as a case study for what life is like on this side of the fall. The side of the fall that we share with Cain and Abel. What will life be like? Well, we see both Sons of Adam and Eve worshiping, right? We see them, uh, we see a dysfunction in that worship. We see uh, sin intruding in the family relationship between brothers. All sorts of things. But here's what God says to us in his word. He's talking to Cain now. Cain 
God did not accept Cain's sacrifice. The book of Hebrews tells us the reason that he didn't accept Cain's sacrifice was that it was not coupled with faith, whereas Abel's was coupled with faith. So Cain gets all bent out of shape and angry, and God looks at Cain and he says this, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And see what that's like? We live on the same side of the fall as Cain and Abel. And what God says to us as we live in this world is that sin is right there. Sin is personified as crouching at our door. Is desire is for us. In other words, we are in the crosshairs. But we must master it. And what that does is it sets the tone for what life is like on this side of the fall. What life is like in this world that God has allowed to continue. All right, so right away in Genesis, early stages of Genesis, we see this. Now, that's the first book of the Bible. Looking at the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, book of Revelation, um, we see in chapters 12 and 13 something very curious. We see a dragon, and we see two beasts. And what's curious is the, how these monstrosities are depicted. The dragon is worshipped. The first beast is made in the image of the dragon and is also worshipped. And then the, be the second beast has the responsibility of pointing to the first beast. So what's going on here? We're not going to get it into tonight, but basically what we have in Genesis 12 and 13 is a counterfeit trinity. And you'll notice that the dragon parallels the father. And the first beast parallels the Christ who died and came to life. The beast seals. And it shows us what the book of Revelation is actually about. The book of Revelation asks, in terms of, the, in terms of these kingdoms, which one will you be part of? Which one are you part of? The enduring kingdom or the kingdom that will uh, be destroyed, what king will you serve? But the basic question, the more basic question is this, whom will you worship? That's the main question of the book of Revelation. Whom will you worship? So we look at this description in Revelation 13, of the first beast, the one representing, that is the counterfeit Christ, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. Does that sound familiar? And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight? against it. Now, the book of Revelation is 
curious in the sense that you can, it can be structured. You can diagram it different ways. And there are different approaches to the book of Revelation that I think that we can gain something from a variety of the perspectives out there, something we can learn. There's a linear way of looking at the book of Revelation, a linear way. In fact, if you look at the Revelation, the book of Revelation as seven cycles where one cycle takes you this far, the next one overlaps a little bit but takes you further and then further until further until you come to the new creation. It's like waves lapping up on a shore where a wave laps up and then the next one goes further and further and further. And so we have this linear view of Revelation that tells us great news. The great news is that there's going to be a happy ending where all will be made well. We learn that the, all, the, those who belong to the kingdom of Satan, Satan himself, the demons will all be cast into the lake of fire. The present age will be done away with and the kingdom of God ushered in in fullness. And it's no more sin, no more death, no more mourning. And we can look at it, we can express it this way. I'm going to give you, the example I have here is of Jane. Jane, this is a linear, Jane went to the fair, was feeling fine, ate too many donuts, it was no doubt the Goshen Fair, was feeling sick, came home from the fair. So what does that show you? It shows you progression, right? It's a little narrative there. There's a happy ending and that she came home and uh, she made it back home. But there's another way of looking at this. And this is the way the book of Revelation can be outlined. It's called chiasm. And there are a number of chiastic structures. And what chiasm does is it draws you to the center. And let's look again at Jane. Jane went to the fair, was feeling fine, ate too many donuts, was feeling sick, came home from the fair. And you see the parallels. So if the important thing is the thing of chiasm that brings you to the center, what is the point of that sentence? What is it pointing us to? The what? The donuts. The donuts, right. That's what the, what the book of Revelation does too is it says, as we live in this world... See, the book of Revelation is not a crystal ball to the future, in my thought, in my opinion. Rather, it is something given us by our Lord Jesus Christ to navigate the seas in a choppy world, choppy seas in a world right now where we struggle. And what we see is we're brought to the center of the book of Revelation is we see this counterfeit trinity because it leads us right to Genesis 12 and 13, where we recognize there is a competitor for our allegiance. There is someone who is opposed to us, who takes a stand against God and his Christ, who pursues those who follow Jesus Christ. And it shows us as Christians what we are up against in this world, and there's more to it than meets the eye. Meaning this, that we have an unseen enemy. That does not mean unreal. 
It means unseen. Let's look at what this uh, world in which we live is. How, let's see how it's described. By the way, most of my, most of my slides uh, are just Scripture. And not everything I'm going to be uh, reading from Scripture is on a slide, but most of the slides are just Scripture. So here are a couple. Here's how Paul writes to the Galatian church, and he says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. You see, how, how is this age, how is this, how, where we live, how is it described? It is an evil age where wickedness, I don't want to say reigns, but let's just say it touches everything. It intrudes. You look at Cain and Abel. There's that case study. Here's Cain. We see him sin and wickedness turning him against God. Cain being angry against God. Cain, instead of heeding the counsel of God, he opposed God. That's the way sin works. And we see the rupture of the relationship between Cain and Abel, where one brother is murdering another. That's the world in which we live. It is a cursed world. Um, here's the description, kind of like it is, you know, Ephesians and Colossians are sister epistles. They cover a lot of the same territory. Well, the same with that bio I gave you of myself that applies to you as a believer. In Colossians 1, he has, this meaning God, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And what that says right now is that if you are a believer, Jesus Christ entered your life. He rescued you. Or as a catechism puts it, he subdued you to himself. He rules and defends you. He restrains and conquers all of your and his enemies. He has brought you from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of life and light. And that makes all the difference in the world. Our Lord Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, John 17, at the close of his upper room discourse, what did Jesus do? He prayed for those who were his disciples, then prayed for those who would believe in him. So he's talking about praying for those who are part of this present evil age. And what did he pray for us? He said, to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And that gives us an idea of what we contend with, what life is like, the antagonistic nature of the Christian life. Or that's the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer that he teaches us in Matthew 6, we're told, 
Your kingdom come. Again, kingdom qualified, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or it could be translated, deliver us from the evil one. Spiritual warfare is um, written about by every New Testament writer, every one. Peter is an example. You're reading his epistle. I, I think your uh, Raymond is going through a your pastor is going through a, a sermon series on Peter. And you've learned that Peter deals with all kinds of very practical topics, right? He talks about husbands and wives. He talks about authority. He talks about witnessing to others. Uh, he, he talks about suffering and struggles and all that. Very normal kinds of topics. But when, when uh, Peter gets to the end of his letter, this is what he says. Am I, let me make sure I'm the right... Oh. This is one of the things I didn't put on a slide. Okay, I was confused for a second. Peter says this as he's wrapping up his letter. He says, be sober-minded. What does that mean? Have your wits about you, right? Be watchful. In other words, it's not a matter of being strolling through life. It's a matter of being on high alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And Peter writes this like it's some ordinary things. You know, you're talking about witnessing. You're talking about husbands, wives. Now he starts talking about the devil like it's ordinary. Well, it is. It's part of what it means to live with and for Jesus Christ in this world, it's something that we need to have on our radar, that we need to take into account in our relationship conflicts, the struggles that we face, our, the, our missionary endeavors, everything. It's a layer, a lens that we need to bring to factor in. Now, the vast teaching, I mentioned that every New Testament writer talks about spiritual warfare, but the vast teaching uh, comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul. And Paul, when he talks about spiritual warfare, you get this idea. You get the idea that spiritual warfare is not tangential to the Christian life. It's part of the core curriculum of discipleship. It's not, it's not something that should be an elective. It is something that is part of the core curriculum of his teaching. Now, in 1 Corinthians, uh, where Paul, well, let me start with this. What was the church at Corinth like? If you're looking at 1 Corinthians, tell me some, tell me what, what was your impression of the church at Corinth? Just speak up so I can hear you over the air conditioner. I'm very thankful for the air conditioner. Don't think I'm complaining. But you have to speak up so I can hear you above it. Last time I was here, the air conditioner had not been installed, and it was hot, just like today. So I'm very thankful. So what, what was the church at Corinth like? Speak up. 
divided. Yes, there were, there were party, there's a party spirit. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. So yes, there were these factions. What else was it like? Immoral? Yes. Sexually immoral? Yes. Yes, there was sexual immorality, some things that were unspeakable going on. Anything else? Was it a happy place? No, it wasn't. There was all kinds of conflict, and it was roiling. It, as a pastor, Corinthian, the Church of Corinth always uh, encouraged me because it reminded me that God sticks with his church and there's no plan B because the Apostle Paul is speaking into this mess of a church with the wisdom of God, the power of God to take care of things. But this is interesting. When you get to, so that's 1 Corinthians. When you get to 2 Corinthians, it's kind of like pulling back the veil to see what was going on and what do we find in 2 Corinthians? We find a whole lot of talk about spiritual warfare. I think it's six instances. Paul gives a, uh, an explanation of spiritual warfare. I put a few down here. These are three. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Uh, chapter 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So you get the idea. He's saying that as we deal with a mess and the division and the uh, decadence and the dysfunction of this church, we need to factor in this dimension of spiritual warfare. We need to take into account what God tells us about the enemy of our souls. In his letter to Ephesians, um, to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, and that's the one we, letter we most typically think of when we think of spiritual warfare. In fact, we, we think of it as Ephesians 6. What the Apostle Paul does in the, in the book of Ephesians is he kind of establishes a center, a center for the study of spiritual warfare. Usually we think of Ephesians 6, but actually every chapter of the letter in the letter to the Ephesians tells us something that we need to know for the conduct of spiritual warfare. So it's not just at the end, Ephesians 6, it's every chapter. One of the things the Apostle Paul talks about, let me make sure where I am here. Uh, one of the things the Apostle Paul talks about is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And uh, part of that equipping involves this instruction in spiritual warfare. Because the church, I think one way to look at the church is this. The church is an incubator and an outpost of God's kingdom. So as an incubator, you come, you're, you learn the gospel, you grow, 
in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You grow in what it means to follow him. And as an outpost, the church is a mission agency for the kingdom. The church is an outpost by which the kingdom of God grows. And the kingdom of God grows at the expense of the kingdom of Satan. One of the things lacking in our day when it comes to the church is we don't have the edge that we need. We don't have a fighting spirit. Uh, John Piper, uh, in one of his books, I think it's uh, Let the Nations Be Glad, he writes this. He says, The crying need of the hour is to put the churches on a wartime footing. Mission leaders are crying out, where is the church's concept of militancy, of a mighty army willing to suffer, moving ahead with exultant determination to take the, the world by storm? Where is the risk-taking, the launching out on God alone? The answer is that it has been swallowed up in a peacetime mentality. You hear what he's saying? He's saying that we forget, we don't realize, we realize, we don't realize, take into account that we are an outpost of God's kingdom for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've adopted a peacetime footing, meaning that we think of ourselves more as a social club that has all the programs, all the amenities that we want because we think along the lines of a peacetime mentality instead of the church militant. The church moving, the church willing to suffer. You know, nowadays when we talk about the gospel, we shrink back not at the raised sword, but at a raised eyebrow. What do people, what are they going to think of me? All because we don't have that wartime mentality. Um, many of you probably have heard of the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. I think it's the, other than the Bible, I think it's the most published uh, book in the world, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Bunyan's second most famous book was, I think it's called A Holy War. It's either A Holy War or The Holy War. But one of the things Bunyan does is, like in Pilgrim's Progress, he, he has names for people that basically describe their character. And he does that in The Holy War also. This is what Bunyan says. He's describing Lucifer's strategy. And uh, he says this, Mr. Sweet World and Present Good are two men of civility and cunning. Let those engaged in this business for us and let Mansoul, that's his name for the church, Mansoul, let Mansoul be taken, this is Satan's strategy, let man's soul be taken with much business, and if possible, with much pleasure. And this is the way to get ground of them. Let us, this is the satanic strategy, this is before C.S. Lewis, the screw tape letters, let us but cumber and occupy 
and amuse Mansoul, the church, sufficiently, and they will make their castle a warehouse for goods instead of a garrison for men of war. What do you think? How successful has Satan been in neutering the church, in distracting the church, in preoccupying the church so that the important things are to the side and trivial things are the center. I think as I look today at the world, one of my prayers is that the church would again be salt and light for Jesus Christ to influence a culture that is going down the drain. So, uh, there's a lot we could talk about spiritual warfare. All I want to do, for some reason I look at my Apple Watch and my heart rate is showing. I'm not sure why that is. but <clears throat> Instead of looking at the variety of passages we could look at with spiritual warfare, tracing it from the Old Testament, I want to focus on just on the letter to the Ephesians. The letter to, um, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So, a uh, very familiar passage, chapter 6, the end of the letter. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that's people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to spell out uh, the armor of God. But I'd remind us that Ephesians 6 as pointed as it is in its discussion of spiritual warfare, it flows out almost like the tip of an iceberg uh, grows out of the bulk of the iceberg that is below the surface. Or we could put it differently. Ephesians 6 is like uh, the, an outlet where we plug something into the outlet, but there's a whole lot behind that that gives the outlet its power. That's what the book of Ephesians does. And Ephesians 6, in the discussion of spiritual warfare, is the culmination of what the apostle has, uh, the case he's built uh, thus far. So we're going to, that's what we're going to look at. So Ephesians 1. Paul begins Ephesians 1 uh, with uh, verses 3 through 14 which in the original is one sentence. It is one magisterial sentence. And what it does is it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And then what the apostle does is he goes on to give us this picture of our salvation that is bound up in, in the Trinity, in the living and true God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where the Father appoints our salvation, the Son accomplishes our salvation, and the Spirit applies our salvation. And so Paul begins by situating us on the work of God, on the work of God for our salvation, the work of God in establishing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
We are debtors to grace. Uh, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became incarnate to wage warfare against the rule. It's interesting uh, to look at some of the descriptions you have uh, of Satan in in Scripture. uh, To me, they seem like over the top, and I thought, is this the Bible? Is this what Scripture is saying? But listen, look at some of these things. Here's Jesus. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Something to think about, that Satan has the power of death. You know, it doesn't, isn't, isn't it God who ordains all our days before when it comes to be? So what, what's that talking about? Well, we're just, we're given an idea of how Satan is described here. Um, when it says Jesus took on flesh, he became like us in every way except without sin. But look at the other ways. First uh, John, by this it is evident that we are children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Or 1 John 5, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. One of the things that Paul makes clear in Ephesians 1 is that it is Jesus Christ who is the one, the seed of the woman, who came to gain victory over Satan. He identified with us in our humanity. He was the uh, second Adam who represented us, and he delivered us from from the dominion of darkness. You know, sometimes we're told we conduct spiritual warfare by binding the strong man. Have you ever heard that expression? But that's not true. There is only one binder of the strong man, and that is Jesus Christ. So Christ binding the strong man is not our example. It's our confidence as we look to him. Uh, The prayer of Ephesians uh, 1 Here's how it closes. This isn't the whole prayer, but he says this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You see what he's doing? He is, the Apostle Paul, he's beginning his discussion of spiritual warfare by doing this. He's saying, God sent his son to do what we could not. Jesus established his kingdom. One day that kingdom will be ushered in. Jesus is the one who defeated the devil by his work on the cross.
But let's, let's move on to Ephesians 2. Paul moves uh, from the general work of salvation in Ephesians 1 and brings it home to us individually, specifically in Ephesians 2. So he, he moves in Ephesians 1 from the accomplishment of salvation to our experience of it in our individual lives. So here's what he says in Ephesians 2. And this is what I read earlier about myself. And this is two of you. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What he's saying is that all of us are born into this world as part of the kingdom of Satan. He's saying that we, are, we walk in darkness, our conduct follows the evil one, but though we were dead in sin, God makes us alive in Jesus Christ. sure I'm here in the right place here. Um, Ephesians, this portion of Ephesians basically says that by nature we are dead men walking. We have life physically, but we don't have life spiritually. Uh, Charles, Charles Wesley, in his uh, hymn, And Can It Be?, I think captures it well when he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, Fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So you see what he's drawing there? He's describing a salvation accomplished by God, applied to us in our life experience uh, when we came to Jesus Christ, and that's done by the work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. You know, for me, I heard the gospel many times, but there was that one time I heard it, and all of a sudden, the things that I heard before that I thought were silly and I found kind of repugnant, they started making sense. They started, what was distasteful to me became savory. Why was that? It's because the Spirit of God had given me eyes to see, a mind to understand, and a heart to embrace. And just as Wesley described, I came to him. All right, Ephesians 3. What Paul does now is he uh, reminds us of the power that we have for spiritual warfare. He gives us this prayer in Ephesians 3. For this reason, I bow my knee, knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Now to him, that is Jesus, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that has worked within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. All right, so what the first half of Ephesians does is it, is it um, locates us, locates the power for spiritual warfare firmly in God. And his closing prayer says the power is of God who is able to do. You know, Ephesians is divided in six chapters. It basically is down the middle where you've got the, the, uh, the theological foundation, and then you've got because of that, 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 those truths, this is true in your life. So now Paul moves on to, in Ephesians 4, to some practical things. So what does spiritual warfare look like practically in our lives? What does it look like in the conduct? Paul says this. Oops. He says this in, in Ephesians 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Who are the Gentiles? They are, in this case, unbelievers. You know, Paul says in Romans 9 that, uh, it, that true Israel are those who are circumcised of the Spirit. Gentiles means unbelievers. And he says that you might have before when you walk when you're part of the kingdom of God, but now that you're a believer, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Child of God, you're called to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see what he's saying here? He's saying that when you were part of the kingdom of darkness, this described you, but now you have come to know Jesus Christ. And the life that you are to follow now is to recognize two things, the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life and the saviorship of Jesus Christ in your life. So Paul says, he, he does this turn where he says that you need to, we need to um, follow Christ. Let me see. And what he's saying is this. We're delivered from the kingdom of darkness, and the only way that Satan can have an influence in our lives is when we allow him. Paul says then, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil, or give a foothold to the devil. That's an interesting comparison with, Gen with Cain. Remember, sin is crouching at your door, and his desire is for you, but you must master it. And now it's like you leave the door open for a toehold by our enemy 
ignoring the counsel of our God, that our enemy crouches at the door and it is hungry for you. So spiritual warfare involves putting off that which described us, putting on that which now describes us. All right, in Ephesians 5, we're called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Well, Ephesians 4, that's talking about the responsibility of the church to equip us for spiritual warfare. That's one of the things we do. You notice, by the way, you notice this. He says, given pastors, teachers to, to build you up, everything. And notice how it ends. So that we may no longer be children. How are children described as unstable? Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So one of the things the church needs to do is to educate us in the truth of God, to equip us in the ways of God as part of our spiritual warfare so that we are equipped for it. But in chapter 5, he says this, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be part partners with them. For at one time, you were darkness. But now, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. See, God is light. And to be children of light means to partake of Jesus Christ. And what, is, what does light look like? He says, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Because that's what our life is all about, Christian. What pleases the Lord? How does he want me to understand things? How does he want to conduct my life? What values does he want me? What priorities does he want me to have? And he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Do you see the spiritual warfare there? That we as children of light who live in a dark world, that we're not to participate in things of darkness? That is spiritual warfare. So in a sense, we live antagonistically to the world, not not unfriendly, I'm not saying that, not with animosity, but there is an antagonism there. And he goes on in chapter 5 to say this, look carefully then, again, there's that awareness. Careful where you step. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. You hear how the apostle is describing the world in which we live? The days are evil. It's interesting, James. And James, um, he talks about trials. Consider it all joy. We encounter trials of various kinds, my brothers. Um, and he says, for you know what your faith does. And then he says, he says but in order to do this, you're going to need wisdom. James says, to pray for wisdom. And that helps us to navigate these trials. And then James goes on to talk about spiritual warfare. 
And in James, he talks about two kinds of wisdom. He talks about wisdom from above, and then he also talks about demonic wisdom. The wisdom that seems right to us, but its end is the way of death. And so the church is where we are taught the scriptures are our text to learn to distinguish between good and evil, to train our senses to distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil. Why? Because the Christian life is spiritual warfare. Let me, let me just mention this with this text. Um, when we talk about spiritual warfare, God has enfolded us into a community of believers. We are an army. And we have one another's backs. And this is not mavericks. This is us being part of the church militant, where we need one another. We encourage one another. We stim- For example, in, uh, in the book of Hebrews, which also talks about spiritual warfare, Involvement with one another is given a a negative bent and a positive bent. The negative bent in Hebrews 3 says um, that uh, do not, it talks to us about about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Because, uh, let me see how it's put here. I don't think I have the text. But it talks about uh, take care, my brothers, lest there be be found in you a sinful, unbelieving heart. And what it warns against is hardness of heart. And in order to keep us from becoming hardened of heart, we need the love and the fellowship of one another. We need a brother when we stray to say, get back here. We need a brother praying for us, a sister speaking to us, walking alongside us, because we need protection from our enemy, the devil. Also, we told, we're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together in Hebrews 10. Why? The positive way to stimulate one another, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. In other words, we're to be irritants for Christ. The word there in Hebrews is actually like a nag. It reminds you of a... a you know, with an oyster, and there's a grain of sand, and it becomes an irritant. And what happens to that grain of sand? It, a pearl forms around it. And that's what we are to be as part of the church militant to our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, where God has given us one to the other. All right, he moves on now to Ephesians 6. And the very familiar passage to us that deals with the, uh, as he gets to the, uh, brings it home in respect to spiritual warfare. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I already read, uh, read that part. Now, when it says the power, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might, what power is that? According to Ephesians 1, resurrection power. It's the power of the age to come. It's the power of the age to come intruding on our lives right now. 
so that in Christ we can do all things. But it is resurrection power at work in us right now as we lean on Jesus Christ. Our enemy is spiritual. Martin Luther, we sing about that with a mighty fortress, right? Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. Our weapons, our enemy is spiritual. Our weapons are spiritual. 2 Corinthians 10. Uh, they are wielded through, one way through prayer. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And there we, where we support one another. And we wage war through prayer. All right. There, I'm not going to get into the weapons a lot. There, I mean, it's ministry of prayer and the word, uh, personal example, fellowship, things like that. But what is the strategy God gives us for, for conducting spiritual warfare in the book of Ephesians? It's standing. Isn't that weird? Your strategy is to stand. He says, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, and then he gets into the, into the spiritual armor. Why would that be? Why standing? It's because our combat is accomplished in Christ. There are two other terms that you see in Scripture uh, that basically have to do with standing in Christ. One is abide. John uses the word abide, where uh, Jesus says, if you're going to have life, you must abide in me. If you're going to be fruitful, if you're going to be productive in your life, you need to abide in me. Paul says of stand. Or John, in his epistles and in the book of Revelation, uses another term, for this union with Christ. And what is that? It's overcome, which is basically abiding with an edge of resistance, reminding us that our enemy, the devil, opposes us. Now, are we saved by overcoming? Well, yes, but not by our overcoming, but by Jesus. We overcome, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. So we live out that overcoming, just as we saw in Ephesians. You are light in the Lord. Therefore, be light in the Lord. So this standing has to do, theologically, with what's called union with Christ. You know, in Ephesians 1, Paul said, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And he keeps talking about in Christ, in him, in him. That is where our strength is found, in Christ. That's why we stand. All right, now how do we do that? How do we stand? Well, let me just mention uh, three tactics of our enemy. Our enemy, we, Scripture says we're not ignorant of his schemes. We see how he works. Let's talk about uh, uh, three major tactics. Accusation. Our enemy's accusation is one of his tactics. Uh, deception and temptation. Accusation deception, and temptation. Let's, let's see how this works. 
as we stand firm in Christ. First. Let's see. No, right now. I missed a lot of slides here. Who knows where I am? <laughs> um, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. We're told in um, Revelation 12 that he is the accuser of the brethren. He is the adversary. Now, the word Satan as a noun means adversary. As a verb, it is to accuse. So we see these pictures like in Zechariah 3. We see, we see the high priest coming before God, ready to sacrifice, and he's filthy. And Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. And that's what Satan does. He accuses us. Who of us here does not sin? All of us sin. So that Satan, as a prosecuting attorney, brings our offenses before God, saying, he did this, he did, and we are caught dead to rights because we sin. We sin in thought, word, and deed, not doing what we should, doing what we should not. And so Satan has a litany of offenses against us. How do we stand firm in Christ against Satan's accusations? Against Satan's tactic of accusations, we stand firm in Christ's righteousness. One way to put it is we preach the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves that in Christ there is no condemnation. His righteousness is ours. So uh, Satan points out our sin in our lives to drive us to despair. The Spirit points out the sin in our lives to drive us to Christ. I like the, uh, in the back of my little booklet here that some of you got, uh, there's this uh, song, Before the Throne of God Above. Is that one you sing here? But one of the stanzas says, When Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within, and we know it's true, it's there. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So that when Satan, the accuser, accuses us of our sin, we answer, we stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We stand in the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. All right, how about deception? Satan is a deceiver. We're told that he's a liar. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He is the ruler of this world, we're told. And one of the ways that Satan gets these lies out there, is he does it. Now, we're told that Satan is, that his kingdom exists. And what he does is he uses the institutions of this fallen world to proffer his lies. False religious teachers, and there are pulpits throughout our land that preach a different gospel. 
that preach um, just positive think positive things about yourself. Come here for, a, they'll say, for a feel-good message. The pundits of pop culture, where evil is called good, where truth is fluid, and right and wrong are thoroughly subjective. Or the secular, secular educational institutions bringing a secular worldview to bear. In fact, do you know that Satan can even use believers? When Peter confessed Jesus, says, you are the Christ. Jesus said, commended Peter. But when Jesus said to Peter, I've got to go to the cross. And Peter, and, uh, Peter said, no way, Lord. And what did Jesus say of Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Meaning that Peter was being used to oppose the will of God. Well, how do we counter Satan's deceptions? Well, deceptions deal with lies, so we stand firm in Christ's truth. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. That's what it talks about in 2 Corinthians 10. We're to bring the Word of God to dwell in us richly. Finally, Satan as a tempter. He whispers, and we know this when we go through trials or when we see things happen to people we love or when we recognize that we're children of God and bad things are happening to us. And we say, God, what's happening here? Aren't you supposed to protect your children? Why, why are you allowing this? And Satan will whisper and he'll say, is God really good? Is God really all-powerful? Is God really loving? Is God really present? Is God real? And that's what he'll do, is he tries to woo us and turn us away from God. He's a seductress. When you read about adultery in the book of Proverbs, look at that actually as adultery, but also look at it in spiritual terms that there is spiritual adultery where we forsake the God that we love. And Satan is seen there as an adulteress. Well, how do we handle uh, Satan's tactic of temptation? Well, against this tactic of temptation, we stand firm in Christ's strength. Christ's strength. You know, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 learned this uh, the hard way. He learned a basic principle for spiritual warfare. He said, I'm getting too conceited. And so God gave me a thorn in the flesh, an instrument of Satan. And the reason God gave that to me is to show how weak I am, but also to show me that his strength is made perfect in weakness. And that's a basic principle for spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is conducted in weakness. It's conducted in dependence and humility, leaning thoroughly on Jesus Christ. All right, what, what questions do you have um, 
It's probably very, a lot of, very rushed, but what questions do you have? Yes. It's on. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Stan. Uh, thank you, Stan. Uh, just wondering if you can comment on any of the errors out there. I can come up to you one-on-one. -on -one. Speak up a little bit, please. I'm just wondering if you can contrast your scriptural approach here with any of the errors out there in regard to spiritual warf warfare. I can mention a couple authors if that would be helpful. Uh, I'm thinking, and maybe not... I don't know how much of this is error, but uh, Dave Powelson has a Power Encounters mm -hmm. book, and just as Christ heals the paralytic, Christ uh, casts out demons as an affliction. He's not linking it with sin necessarily, and Christ is unique, so there's that whole idea. And then mm -hmm. I'm thinking Neil Lozano. Anderson. He, mm -hmm. You know him? He's here in Philly. And oh. he, he believes in the gospel and God the Father and scripture. But if you're struggling with sin and you've prayed and you've got scripture and you repent and you do all these things and you're still stuck, there may be a spirit working with your sin. He may even call it spirit of lust, spirit of anger. And then he has you repent, believe, renounce. And I don't know how they, what they do with the devil's but there's a conscious um, ministry to pray, pray away the spiritual influence. And just wondering if you have any thoughts on these kinds of things. Okay. I Thank you. might have some thoughts, but I'm not sure how organized they are, but they're in there somewhere. Um, yeah, Dave Powell's in his book, Power Encounters, which, by the way, he republished an updated version just before his death. I forgot the name of it off the top of my head. Uh, but in Power Encounters, D Dave Pallison talks about ecbalistic ministries where you, people, is the counseling approach where people have the sin of anger or the sin of greed and there are efforts made to cast out, I'm sorry, the demon of anger, to cast out the demon. Um, and Dave, I think, calls it ecbalistic ministries to cast out. And Dave Pallison calls for a more uh, biblical approach, much as what we've seen with the Apostle Paul when Paul talks about Put off the old man. Put off that which, which was consistent with who you were B.C., before Christ, before uh, when you were still an unbeliever. Put that off because just like Lazarus, when he emerged from the tomb and grave clothes were no longer appropriate for him because he was alive, we do that too. We're to cast off those things. We're to put them off us and to put on who we are in Jesus Christ. So we understand that not in terms of demons, but, it, as Paul says, in anger, you know, be angry and do not sin, do not give the devil a foothold. We can see that while anger itself is not a demon, it can open the door for Satan to have an inroad in our lives. And I've seen that, you've seen it too, through people who have a conflict in a relationship. And what they do is they allow a root of bitterness to spring up, to take root and to spring up to defile not only themselves, but to defile, the writer of Hebrews says, defile many. So 
the demon, the, I don't think that calling these things the demon of all this is helpful, but to recognize that Satan is there trying to capitalize or to lead us astray is very healthy and appropriate. That's great. Yes. Yeah. Do the Flyers jersey. <laughs> Chris and then Noah after Chris. Yeah, thanks. Um, so quick question. Uh, I know a few people who, whenever anything bad or negative happens in their could, life... Could you speak up, please? Uh, this uh, air conditioning is great. But... Yeah, I know a few people in my life who, anytime anything bad or negative happens, they're quick to say, oh, this is just spir spiritual warfare. Um, is there any thoughts you have on discerning, like, this stuff is just bad because life stinks versus this is genuinely spiritual warfare? Or is it all spiritual warfare? Do you know what I'm saying? I think I do. Okay. And I think the probably the healthier way to say is that Satan is certainly a cheerleader when it comes to us walking in the way of righteousness, when it comes to us holding fast to the deceptions of this world. So um, in, this, in that sense, it is a spiritual warfare because it is, it, it is a matter of a conflict of light and darkness. Are we living with who we are in Christ in light or in darkness? So I don't want to get the idea, I don't, I don't think we need to have the idea that uh, Satan has come uh, to, you know, beat the walls down. Uh, that I think we want to understand that all of life, all of the Christian life, the spiritual war, C.S. Lewis, uh, Screwtape Letters, I think does a great job. It's fanciful, but I think it holds grains of biblical truth to show the tactics of Satan to make things palatable to us. So I would understand that all the spiritual warfare is saying that we need Jesus Christ where we are weak. We need Jesus Christ where we are strong. In fact, one of the things that I think Satan does is he convinces us, well, in fact, I remember this. There was a well-known uh, marriage counselor. He and his wife both did marriage seminars. He, he ended up cheating on his wife, something he never and And he, he, he said this to an audience. He said, you know what? There was a, people wanted to pray with me prior to a seminar uh, on this, on uh, being faithful to my wife. He said, I don't need that. I'm, I'm good. I've got that covered. I teach on this. And I think it was within the next year he ended up cheating on his wife. We can never let down our guard. So it's always helpful to, to be aware, to be alert of our enemy, the devil, crouching at the door, whose desire is for us to draw us away from Christ. Uh, first off, thank you for coming. It's been really helpful. Um, my question maybe has been touched on a little bit already, but maybe just to kind of summarize what cautions might you give to someone who maybe tends to, I think a lot of the talk was about this, to under-spiritualize things? And then conversely, what are some cautions you might give to somebody who tends to over-spiritualize certain things? Now, when you say spiritualize, what are you, what are you thinking? So I think in some of the questions that we've answered here about related to certain sin struggles, perhaps, or maybe even something like drug addiction, uh, somebody might say there's a demon or a, a certain spirit behind that, and somebody might come along and say, you're over-spiritualizing the matter. Uh, you know, somebody just is dealing with a medical problem or something along those lines. I think, I think that gets at it. Okay. Well, I, if I understand what you're saying, I think that there, uh, to, like a drug addiction, 
to say that that is all a spiritual oppression kind of thing would be inappropriate. I think it's a matter of looking to understand just the whole person. But in doing that, to see, you know, predilections or things like that, we want to understand that there is a spiritual component that we do need to pray. So it's not the whole of the thing, but it is a dimension that we need to take into account. Um, you, know, you know, you know, for example, you know, when someone rejects, uh, when, when the word is preached, one of the things we might do is pray, Lord, uh, do not let the enemy pluck up the seed of the gospel soon. You know, there, there's this whole sermon that didn't talk about anything about the devil, but we are aware that there is a spiritual dimension to it where Satan is, is active, where he is intentional uh, as an enemy of our souls. Alex? Talking about your, the beginning of your lecture, you referenced um, Piper and you referenced John Bunyan. And yeah. I just wonder if you could clarify, because I agree with you, like it's easy to focus on secondary matters inside the church and ignore the things that are really important, but it's also really easy for churches just to kind of lob that out there, like everything's a secondary issue and there's you know, oh, there's very few things that are primary, and they'll accuse one side of just being overly divisive. It's just how we could be discerning or, like, examples of what would be first-tier issues from your perspective and second-tier issues, because I'm just thinking even in recent days we've seen, you know, complementarianism just be thrown out as, like, a, well, that's a secondary issue. You should never make a big deal about that. And is that actually, you know, is there spiritual warfare going on with issues like that in the church? Anyway. It's tricky to generalize. You know, I do think that the, the, go, the, the gospel needs to be, be, remain the main thing so that the, the trifold purpose of the church is worship, nurture, and witness. Um, and of those three, only one will endure into eternity. But we have responsibilities. But, for example, like if there's a men's group or something like that, um, I, I, you know, I, I hate to say anything, you know, do we talk about softball, church softball groups or something like that? It's just we need to be cautious and make sure that there's nothing wrong with enjoying the company of one another, hanging out together, having a good time, but we need to make sure that like a soldier on the field of battle, not at home, but on the field of battle, that requires a certain mentality and edge and preparedness so that uh, just so that we can do what God wants us to do, I think, in, as uh, in that kingdom qualification of being an outpost, outpost of the kingdom. Carlos? Right here. Yes, how, you, how you doing? Uh, you're, thank, you're in the shadow there. That's why I wore red. Um, <laughs> good, uh, good talk. Uh, I like the fact that this is uh, very uh, relevant to me because I spoke a lot about this and um, spiritual warfare because there was a song I was listening this morning and it was uh, called Spiritual Warfare. I just want to pick your brain at um, what do you think of what we're going through now with, you know, people celebrating pride and, you know, with the overturn of Roe versus Wade, which is kind of causes a... Uh, um, commotion within like society it's like kind of 
a dire issue that's kind of separating this country because we support abortion. We enamor with our freedom, with our pride, and it's like what you mentioned, um, the Gentiles living lawlessly, living in sin, enamored with, you know, stuff that's ungodly, for lack of a better word. So what, how, if I'm asking anything, how do I counsel somebody without, like, maligning them? Because, you know, when we evangelize, we have to tread softly or tread carefully on what we say, how we uh, evangelize, how we counsel certain issues that are, like, un ungodly or they're not, or for, for our sake of argument, they're a mockery of God, which I kind of have a serious issue because it affects me as well. Mm. Me, you know, trying to live a godly life. How do I counsel somebody when their pride is, like, the, getting the best of them and there's no way, like, you can evangelize without a step of extra. So the contrast to how God uh, dealt with the Gentiles, the unbelievers, how do we go about the same way in an effective manner that's proactive and it's, it kind of affects the real change that we want as opposed to, you know, asking for something and, you know, we get nothing. No, that's, that's a great question and a very involved question. Uh, I think that what, what the scripture says is that we are in the world, Jesus said, John 17, but not of the world. And we are to let our light shine before men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Peter, when he talks about uh, maintaining our conduct, being holy, so that we are to live in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. That means in what we say. But if you look at the pastoral epistles, or for example, 2 Timothy, it talks about, uh, Paul talks about, there will become a day uh, when people will turn, aside, uh, uh, will turn aside from the truth and to surround themselves with people who teach what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn aside uh, from truth to myths. In other words, what is right in their own eyes? Hold that thought. Peter also talks about uh, living conspicuously for Christ in this world. And if you're living conspicuously, then you can be a subject for persecution. But in either case, we're told to minister God's word, to teach, reprove, correct, and train in righteousness. And what, Peter, what Paul says to Timothy is this, to um, rebuke, exhort, and admonish these people who are turned aside to myths. Here's how we do it. With patience and careful instruction. Not only showing the wrong, but showing them what God says. Not that we smack them down or talk down to them or anything like that. With patience. Why patience? Because we don't convince anybody by twisting arms, do we? It's the Holy Spirit who does the convincing. So we do it with patience, careful instruction, and Peter gives us two other qualities, with gentleness and respect. So often we talk at people, we talk down to them, and we don't respect them, but we do it with gentleness. And actually, I think the word there could be translated meekness, which in the sense is not a milk toast. Meekness is a gentle strength. In other words, you've got firm, unmovable conviction, but there's a gentleness.
there. So when we engage with our culture, we want to stand firm for the Word of God, but we do it with patience and careful instruction, gentleness, and respect. Will you join me in thanking Stan for uh, his time with us tonight? He's going to be down front. If you have any additional questions, um, he is an expert on many things in addition to spiritual warfare. So I would encourage you, if you haven't had the chance to speak with him yet, uh, please do come down. He would love to, to chat with you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us, Lord. Our uh, time together is a good gift from you. Thank you for uh, your concern for our hearts that we not be unaware of the antagonistic uh, uphill battle that we face, that we often take for granted, that we let ourselves slide away from diligence in fighting daily against these powers of the devil. Father, may our eyes be open to this, but may, our, may we not lose heart, knowing that you have given us all that we need for life and godliness, and that your word is faithful and true, and you, as you have promised, will carry to completion the work that you have begun in us at the day of, of Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for that truth. May it be an encouragement to us as we go this evening. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you all.